Could we with ink the ocean fill? Or were the skies of parchment made where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the whole constrain the scroll though stretched from sky to sky. So if you ask a poet to talk about the love of God, that's the sort of things they talk about. I'm no poet, I'm just a preacher. So fasten your seatbelts, and here we go, talking on this immense subject of the love of God. Where do we start? Well, obviously the place to start is in the Bible, which I believe is an excellent book on the subject. Romans chapter 5 is one of the many places we could turn to, and there are a couple of verses in there that I would like to draw to your attention immediately when we think in terms of the love of God. Let me read to you from verse 6 of Romans chapter 5. Paul says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? Through him. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, did you notice particularly the verse, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Notice, first of all, that the Apostle Paul is saying here, the love of God is not an abstract concept. The love of God is not only a warm feeling. The love of God is something that has clearly been demonstrated. Now that's critically important. The love of God has been clearly demonstrated. In other words, it is an objective fact that the love of God has been made evident to us. That being the case, of course, we want to know precisely what has been made evident to us. I'm reminded of a story my father used to tell concerning a young man who'd met a young lady and he'd fallen in love with her and they were separated for some reason or other. And so he was writing love letters to her. Now, this is obviously a very, very old story because it, it actually goes back to the time when people used to write letters. Pre-email, you see. 
In fact, it goes back to the time when people could actually compose a grammatical sentence. In fact, it even goes back further than that, before texting, when people could spell. Now, some of you, I, I realize you have no experience of this at all, but as an old gentleman, I can tell you there was a time when people could actually spell, put a grammatical sentence together, and compose a beautiful letter. We know that because, in actual fact, some of these letters were actually put together and they've become classical books. You see, but it will never happen again. But <laughs> never happen again. <laughs> Can you imagine somebody compiling text messages? No. <laughs> well, this, this story my father told was when this young man was writing letters. And he, he was telling this young lady how much he loved her and how much he missed her. And he said that he would actually swim the widest ocean just to see her smile. And that went down for about a page. Then on the next page, he goes into great detail about how he would climb the highest mountain just to hear her voice. And then he talked about how he would cross the hottest desert just to hold her for one moment. And he went down for about 20 pages of this nonsense. And then he signed off with a flourish. See you on Friday if it's not raining. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, what do you make of that, ladies? <laughs> you, you say, wow, this is some gentleman I've hooked here. You see, all this dramatic talk, all this wonderful emotionalism, but if it's raining, he's not going to show up? That, that's not love. Love is demonstrable. Now, the big thing is, all right, if the love of God is not just an abstract concept, if it is not just a theological nicety, if it is something that is clearly demonstrable, please tell me how it has been demonstrated. Well, what does it say here? God demonstrates his love for us in this. In what? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's the answer. What it tells us is this. If you want to begin to grapple with this concept, this reality, this clearly demonstrable fact, if you want to begin to grapple with it, you start with the cross. That is where you will begin to understand something of the love of God. Now, you'll notice that the Apostle Paul sets this statement in, the, in, a, in a contrasting context. He says, now, we're talking here about God demonstrating his love in the fact that Christ died for us. Now, he said this Talk about this business of one person dying for another. It is extremely rare. You don't find people doing this. People just don't go out of their way to voluntarily lay down their lives for other people. 
I have counseled with people in our congregation who needed a kidney transplant, but members of their own families who had a match wouldn't give a kidney. So the, the reality is that it would be very, very rare for somebody to be willing to lay down their life. He even goes further. He said, there are some people who are absolute models of integrity. There are some people who are the ultimate epitome of righteousness. Rarely would anybody die for one of them. In fact, he said, you go even further. There are some people who are not just the epitome of righteousness, but they've worked it out in practical ways, so that they have become absolutely indispensable in society. They, they are such good people. Just goodness oozes out of them. Wherever they go, there's a trail of good works. They are Mother Teresa's. Hey, I'll tell you something, he says. Rarely would anybody die for somebody like that. Now, he says, against that, you've got to understand this. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, what does that mean? In other words, what he's saying is this. It was whilst there we were in a condition where there was absolutely nothing about us that would commend us to God to give his son to die for us, God nevertheless gave his son to die for us out of love. Human love very often says, I love you because. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, you remember? She wrote a little poem. And in it she said, how do I love you? Let me count the ways. It's very touching, ladies, isn't it? Unfortunately, I don't know any more of the poem. But (laughs) I was rather impressed I remembered that much. How do I love you? Let me count the ways. Well, I suppose you could say, well, I love you because, and 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 I love you because. That's what humans do. (laughs) God leans out of heaven, looks at the human race, and he says, I love you because. Can't think of anything. I can't think of anything. Human beings often say, I love you if. I love you if. <laughs> God looked out of heaven and, and he said, now look, if you'll do this, and if you'll do this, and if you'll quit doing that, and if you'll start doing this, then I'll love you. But it was totally disappointing because people wouldn't do it. So the love of God is not a love because, and it's not a love if. Human beings sometimes say, I used to love you when. I used to love you when. Some of you can testify to that, I'm sure. You've been told that. Very hurtful, very damaging, destructive thing to be told. God looks at human beings and he says, he didn't say, I loved you when. Because, actually, his love hasn't changed. His love endures forever. 
So what we realize is this, that when we're talking about the love of God being demonstrated, we've got to understand it was not demonstrated to people as a reward. It was demonstrated because God is in the business of revealing himself to us. It wasn't in us that the love was generated. It was in him that the love was generated, and it flowed out of him. It was all part of his self-revelation. Well, how did he do it? He did it by addressing and totally unworthy people. Three things about these people that we're told in that passage I read to you a few minutes ago. I'll summarize it for you, not in theological terminology, in very down-to-earth terminology. What it says basically is this. The love of God is demonstrated in the fact that totally undeserving people unattractive people as far as God is concerned, unsatisfactory people as far as God is concerned, they were the objects of his love. It wasn't because of what they were. It was despite what we were. Well, what were we? If you look at it, there are three things. Number one, it's very obvious from what he says here that what we are is all wrong. What we are is all wrong. As a result of that, what we've done is all wrong. As a result of that, where we're going is all wrong. And the three are totally, inextricably bound up in each other. Because we are what we are, we've done what we've done. Because we've done what we've done, we're going where we're going. Oh, you say, that's too complicated. All right. We're going where we're going because we've done what we've done. But we've done what we've done because we are what we are. You say, that's clearer. That's easy. You see, it's what we are. It's out of what we are that we do what we do. It's because of what we do that we're going where we're going. You say, where do you get all that from? Well, look at the four words that it uses here to describe human beings. Verse 6, it was when we were still powerless that Christ died for the ungodly, that he demonstrated his love while we were still sinners, But if when we were enemies, we were reconciled. Do you get the four words there? Number one, powerless. Number two, ungodly. Number three, sinner. Number four, enemy. Those are the four descriptive words of the humanity that God demonstrated his love to. (laughs) Now, they are not appealing words. Powerless, ungodly, sinners, enemies. What we are in the eyes of God, is all wrong. The word powerless, you say, hey, I'm not powerless. I have physical strength. I have intellectual strength. Human beings are not powerless. If you go into areas where human beings have not gone, there's nothing there. If you go where human beings are, you'll find remarkable development. 
Human ingenuity is obvious. Human beings have put a man on the moon and got him back again. Human beings are exploring space as we understand it. Human beings are going down to the depths of the ocean. There is a part of this globe that they have not explored. Human beings have discovered how to draw out the resources of this world and put them to our use. Human beings are ingenious. Human beings are industrious. Human beings are absolutely fabulous. I agree with all that. There is no question we have huge abilities, but there's one fundamental reality, and is this. We are powerless to live up to what we're supposed to live up to. The great irony is this. We can put man on the moon, and we can bring him back again, but what he comes back to is as bad as what he left, or worse. And the fundamental problems that he left await him when he returns. With little hope of real change. Because there's never really been much evidence of it. We're powerless to live at the level we were created to live. Well, what was that? We were created in the image of God to be God-like. But if we are powerless to live at the level God intended, and the level God intended is to be God-like, then the result of being powerless is ungodly. Get it? And this is fundamentally satisfactory. It gives us a sense of always coming short, which, of course, is the root meaning of the word sinner. Sinner means basically somebody who's always coming short. Somebody who's always missing the target. You say, well, what about, well, I'm not missing the target. I'm achieving my goals. I wanted to make my first million by 25 and I did it. I, I wanted to retire by 45 and I've done it. Don't say that I don't achieve my goals and I'm always coming short. Listen, if the design is that we live in the image of God and demonstrate something that is godly and we don't have the power to do it and we know it, the net result is sinner in this sense. We may achieve our earthbound goals, but our earthbound goals are not what we were created for only. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and soul and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Enough said. Sinner. Powerless, ungodly, sinner. What we are is all wrong. There is a fundamental character flaw. But it gets worse. For the fourth word takes a very different tack. It says we are enemies of God. Now we're not dealing with shortcomings. Now we are dealing with intrusions into areas where we have no business going. For in the same way that God tells, this is what you're to be and this is what you're to do. Love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength, your neighbor as yourself. And we haven't done it. He also gave us a list of things that we don't do for our good. And guess what? We do them. We do them. Why? Out of an attitude, 
out of an attitude that says, God, you're not going to be my God. I'm going to be my God. I'm going to do it my way. As Frank Sinatra, that eminent theologian, once told us, <laughs> I did it. I did it my way. You see, the problem is this. That what's wrong with the human race is that not only do we have a fundamental character flaw that leaves a gaping hole of inadequacy, but we have invested in us that which is fundamentally hostile to God. What we are is all wrong. Now, because we are what we are, we've done what we've done. What would you expect a powerless, ungodly sinner to do? You'd expect him to do a lot of stuff he shouldn't do and fail to do a lot of things he should do, right? Right. What would you expect an enemy of God to do? You'd expect him to go his own way like sheep, to turn to his own way and resist the good shepherd. What we do is all wrong. What's the problem with the world today? The problem with the world today is what we are is all wrong and what we're doing is all wrong. That's the problem. Now, that's the problem with the world. So what we are is all wrong. What we've done is all wrong. Now, when we look at our world, we've got to recognize something. In the beginning, God created it, and his statement on his creation was very good. And the humanity that he put in it, that was good too. I think something went wrong somewhere. I don't think God will look at it now and say, very good. I don't think God will look at humanity now and say, oh, wow, they are the greatest. Very good. In fact, we know for a fact he doesn't. For the scripture tells us that God was grieved in his heart that he had made man. God made this world perfect. He made humanity perfect. And we've blown it. God made his heaven perfect. And this is what he's saying. You're not going to mess my heaven up like you messed up my world. Therefore, you won't go there. Out. And where we're heading is all wrong. This is the predicament of humanity. Now, it is most remarkable. To examine God's attitude to people like that. And the attitude of God is this. Oh, I love them. Not because. Not if. Not when. I just love them because of who I am. I am God. And love oozes out of me. It wells out of me. It is demonstrated in all that I do. And here is the demonstration par excellence. 
I will give my son to die for them. Now, this poses problems for some people. There's a well-known preacher in England. I know him personally. He's been a friend of mine over a number of years. He came up with a startling statement recently that has caused an enormous rift in the church in England. He said the idea that God sent his son to die on the cross for us sounds like cosmic child abuse. Well, he just said what a lot of people think. What he seemed to understand is this. That scripture says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It wasn't God sitting up there and saying, all right, son, those people down there have blown it. Now, the wages of sin is death. Now, if we could find a perfect sacrifice, that perfect sacrifice could take death on behalf of the entirety of humanity, and then I could forgive it. All right, now, you are perfect. You're utterly innocent, so go die. Is that what it was like? No. We're dealing with the mystery of Trinity here. God in Christ dies. God in Christ dies. God in Christ dying, he who had no personal acquaintance with sin became sin for us. In order that he might deal with what we've done and deal with what we are and deal with where we're going. Now, how does he do that? Well, he tells us in here. If we have now been justified by his blood, that is, as Jesus dies on the cross, God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. As this happens on the cross, through the blood of Christ, that is, that's a metaphor for the death of Christ, the substitutionary death of Christ. As that is happening, God is actually dealing with all that we've done, blotting it out utterly and totally. If when we were justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Christ died on the cross, but God raised him from the dead, took him to his own right hand, and seated at the Father's right hand, he ever lives to intercede for us. And one day, I'll die. And I'll stand before God, and he'll open the records, and he'll say, Briscoe, David Stewart, hmm, parlous, sinner, ungodly, enemy. A horrendous list of things you didn't do, you should have done. The list of things you did do, you shouldn't have done. How dare you show up here? At which the son who's seated at the father's right hand will catch my pleading look for mercy. And he'll turn to the father and he'll say, Father, he's one of mine. And I'll be saved from wrath through him. Oh, by the way, this is a talk on the love of God. But you cannot talk about the love of God adequately without pointing out the wrath of God. 
you see. W.Y. Fullerton, the famous British preacher of a previous generation, said this, if we said less about the love of God and more about the wrath of God, we would say much more about his love when we talked about it. In the same way that if you want to display a diamond, get some black velvet. If you want to demonstrate the love of God, demonstrate first of all the holiness of God and the justice of God and the righteousness of God. And you'll say, I don't stand a chance against his holiness and his righteousness and his justice. And God says, oh, yes, you do, because now I can tell you about my love and my grace and my mercy. But don't pick one and exclude the other. It is when I begin to understand the enormity of what's wrong with me and the enormity of what I've done that's wrong and the enormity of the horror of where I'm going because of what I've done that the love of God shines out in full relief. But the fact that Jesus died on the cross saves me from what I've done and that he intercedes for me, saves me from where I'm going but it doesn't change what I am. So what does that mean? It means I get forgiven and I go out and do it all over again. Right? No. Because you see, the root problem is not what I've done. And the root problem is not where I'm going. The root problem is what I am. And salvation that simply deals with what I've done and simply deals with where I'm going is not the salvation of Scripture. For the salvation of Scripture talks about God saving me from what I am. What am I? Powerless, ungodly, coming short with a bad attitude. How are you going to save me from what I am? Well, it says, if these other things have happened, how much more will we be saved by his life? For Jesus died that I might be saved from what I've done. He lives to intercede for me, to save me from where I'm going. In the power of his resurrection, he comes into my life to save me from my powerlessness, save me from my ungodliness, transform my attitude of rebellion, and change me fundamentally from what I am. You see, God... What did you see in me that made you want to do that? And he said, uh, nothing. Nothing. It's my love. It's the love of God. Demonstrate it. Now we go a step further. Look back again in Romans chapter 5. For not only does it talk about the love of God as I have just talked about the love of God as an objective fact, but now it talks about it as a subjective experience. It is not only theology, it is spirituality that now is impacted by the love of God. And always remember, you, know, you don't separate the two. You don't separate the two. Charlie Brown. Remember Charlie Brown? 
Charlie Brown one day was a bit nervous because there was a big thunderstorm and he said to his girlfriend, I'm scared. She said, why are you scared? He said, I think there's going to be another flood. And she said, oh, there won't be another flood. How do you know? He said. And she said, God promised Noah there won't be another flood. He said, is that right? Wow, I feel better already. And she said, that's what good theology does for you. That's what good theology does for you. Good theology is what some people don't want to be bothered with. Let me tell you something. Good theology is what makes you feel better. Now, there are all kinds of ways of feeling good. You can often be feeling good about being bad. You can feel good about doing terrible things and getting away with it. You can feel good by just having something introduce a false concept into your life that allows you to forget the reality of where you are. Feel good. No, be careful with that. Subjective experience has to be rooted in objective truth. And the objective truth is that God's love was clearly demonstrable in Christ's death, resurrection. Well, what is the subjective experience of it? The subjective experience of it is this. Verse 5. Hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given unto us. This is something he has done. He has poured out into our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit A subjective experience of the love of Christ. Where? In our hearts. In our hearts. What is the heart? The heart is the mind, the emotion, the will. The three functions of the heart. With the mind we discern, with the emotions we desire, with the will we decide. It's our discerning, our desiring, our deciding mechanism, which produces attitudes, which produces actions, which produces lifestyles, the heart. Out of the heart are the issues of life. Now, this understanding of the love of God in Christ manifested Through Christ's death and resurrection, which deals with what I am and deals with what I've done and deals with where I'm going, justifies me by his blood, saves me from wrath, and delivers me through his life. All that stuff we've just talked about. It works its way into my mind. And I get it. Ah, I see. And then it percolates into my emotions. And I begin to sense the joy. And I begin to sense the peace. And I begin to know the hope. I don't have time to get into it. Those are the words that recur over and over again in Romans chapter 5. I sense the joy. I sense the peace. And I have this sense of hope. Now, it's worked its way through my mind, down into my emotions. And one of these days, I begin to realize if the love of Christ is what he says it is, then it's got to make a difference. 
And I need to make some decisions. Second Corinthians chapter 5. This is what it says. The love of Christ. The love of God in Christ. Compels us. The word compel. Is a confining word. We were in China. And on previous visits to China. We've been where the Yangtze flows into the China Sea. The huge Yangtze River. At Shanghai. And it, at that particular point, it's pretty wide, pretty slow, ra- relatively shallow, needs dredging, meanders a bit. You know what rivers get like. Wide and shallow and slow and sluggish, meandering and depositing mud. But in the upper reaches of the Yangtze, it goes through the gorges. And these gorges are very narrow. And where the Yangtze goes through these gorges, it is deep and direct and dynamic. Just a different river altogether to what it becomes later on. So narrow are the gorges that one of the famous gorges is called Leaping Tiger Gorge. Leaping Tiger Gorge, the legend there is that there was a tiger terrorizing the villages. The men of the villages got together. They hunted the tiger one day. They cornered him. But right up against the gorge, and at the last minute as they were going in for the kill, the tiger turned around and leapt the gorge. So narrow. This huge Yangtze comes through this narrow gorge. Now then, why do I tell you that? The word compel is the word that would describe the river Yangtze going through the gorge. Held in. Put in a situation from which you can't escape. This is what the love of God does to you. And there are three things that it says in 2 Corinthians 5. First thing it says is this. Because the love of Christ hems us in, it hems us in to this conviction. We are convinced that if one died for all, then all died. And those who died, obviously, are no longer free to live for themselves because that's how they used to live. Now they live for him who died for them and rose again. There'll be something fundamentally obscene about a Christianity that thinks that Christ should give his all so that I don't have to give anything. No. The reality is this. If I begin to understand the love of God in Christ cost Christ everything, I've got to realize that identifying with the one who died for me means that in a sense I died with him. And I died to what it was necessary for him to die for. You got that? I died to what it was necessary for him to die for. And that means I'm through with living for me. Done. The love of Christ has locked me in to this conviction. I have no alternative. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll be what you want me to be. That's it. The love of Christ locks you in to that position. Number two. Henceforth, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, we view no one from a human point of view. We view no one from a human point of view. Totally radicalizes my attitude to self. Totally revolutionizes my attitude to people. 
totally revolutionized my attitude to people. You see, my natural tendency is to look at people from a purely human point of view. God says the love of Christ doesn't allow you to do that for one very simple reason. You know how God looks at people now. He looks at them with great pity and great compassion and great concern and sacrificially gives himself for them to transform them. And that, he says, is your attitude too. Who do you think you are that you can praise God for having an attitude to people that you yourself are not prepared to adopt? Those days are over. The love of Christ locks you in at this point. Radicalizes your view of yourself. Radicalizes your view of people. I was counseling a young couple who wanted to be married. I was asking them a number of questions, and I said to the young man, you want this young lady to give herself to you, to leave all that she's familiar with? Yep. He said, yep. I said, she must be quite a lady. He said, yep. I said, tell me what you see in her. He said, what? I said, tell me what you see in her. And he said, she's a cute little chick. Now, it's very interesting when I, when I tell that. Men laugh, women. Because they know. They know that that is going to be a problematic relationship. That's all he sees. That's how we look at people. Cute little chick. I uh, don't like that ethnic group. Big slob. Who does he think he is? Don't have anything to do with them. Hey, kids, don't go near them. That's how we look at people. The love of Christ says no. Uh Uh-uh. I said to this young man, if that's how you see it, may I tell you how I see it? He said, sure, if you want to. I said, I really want to. (laughs) I said, I see a unique piece of divine creation. I see somebody God loves to distraction. I see somebody for whom Christ died. I see somebody in whom the Holy Spirit wants to take up residence. I see someone whom the Holy Spirit would gift. I see somebody whom the the Spirit of God would empower to become an agent of blessing. I see somebody who could make an unspeakable difference in thousands of lives. I see somebody whose life could count for eternity. I see somebody who God would willingly love to have in his heaven for all eternity. I said, would you like me to go on? He said, no, that's enough. But there's the difference. (laughs) There's the difference, folks. There's the difference between looking at people from a human point of view and looking at people from the point of the love of Christ. Can you imagine anything more radicalizing in the church than a radical revision of our view of self and our radical revision of our view of people? And yet it is perfectly normative from an understanding of the love of Christ objectively and subjectively. Flooding our hearts. The third thing, Paul now finishes up Second Corinthians chapter 5 passage by saying, so as a result of this, we are ambassadors for Christ. And now, 
We've got this striking conviction. And now we've come to this amazing conclusion. And now we make this total commitment. I will be your ambassador. Why? The love of God. The love of God. The love of God is not an abject concept. The love of God is not just a theological truth. The love of God is infinitely more than a fuzzy feeling. The love of God is an accomplished, demonstrable fact that objectively can be explored and examined and subjectively experienced and it will change your life.